Welcome to the Eco Psychology Project podcast. This is John Eric. We're back with another episode. I'd like to introduce our guest for this episode, Robin David, who is a beekeeper with Best Bees. Best Bees is a beekeeping company dedicated to the health of bees and bee populations by installing and maintaining honeybee hives on commercial and residential properties in urban areas across the U.S. They also partner and collaborate with bee researchers to continue finding new solutions and approaches to beekeeping and the uh, pollinator health for stronger food systems, economic security, and environmental resiliency. Robin is from Seattle, where he manages over 70 hives. We had a great conversation about bees and their importance in the ecosystem, as well as the human relationship to bees, how humans and bees work together, and what we humans can learn from bees. We discussed the difference between the introduced honeybee and native bees, what exactly pollination is, the science of bees, approaches to beekeeping, emergent research on beekeeping, uh, some history of beekeeping, why urban beekeeping is important, and some neat ideas Robin has been thinking about as he continues expanding his work with bees. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I posted some links where you can learn more about Best Bees, the work they do, as well as info on how you can start your own hives. Uh, one of the great things about Robin is that he doesn't come from a science background, and yet he is one of the most knowledgeable people um, around for beekeeping um, and is really pioneering some great work. So um, yeah, if you ever have an interest yourself in um, becoming a beekeeper or just uh, increasing your own understanding, knowledge, um, science of bees, uh, you can do it. Quick note about the episode, Robin and I did record in person, which was wonderful. However, we also experienced some sound disturbance, um, so you will probably hear that throughout the episode, and apologize for that. Hopefully it's not too much of an annoyance. So thanks for listening, and remember to thank a bee the next time you see one busy pollinating our beautiful flora. welcome you, uh, Robin, onto the podcast. Oh, thanks. Um, and um, thanks for coming. Thanks for taking the time. It is great to see you. We haven't seen each other in years, but yeah. we know each other. We went to high school together. Um, and it's so nice to like use this as a way to reconnect. Yeah. And um, I do remember uh, a couple years ago, I was working at a native plant nursery, and I think you were doing some part-time work. Mm-hmm. Um in the in the area, I believe. Yes. Um, but I want to sort of start with that about like, what do you do and, and how did you get into it? So I'm a beekeeper, um, which means I tend and manage, at this point in my career, a ton of bees. So somewhere between 70 and 100 hives in the city, which is kind of unheard of. And so I think our connection with the farms was crazy because it was a few years ago, I believe. And at that time, I wasn't working with bees in the city. I was kind of just working, I think, my own solo work, where I was just working on some farms, doing some pollination, and trying to take, like, everything that's happened in my life and incorporate it into bees, um, and just try to get, like, a good survival rate, because that's kind of, like, how people judge, like, are you a good beekeeper? Like, can you make bees survive? Yeah. But there's a whole other, like, aspect of, like, are you a good beekeeper based on how much honey do you sell, which is... As far as at what point in my career, or at this point in my career, 
I just found that that's the worst way to judge a beekeeper. But huh. yeah, but hence why I just give give out honey at this point. But um, but yeah, so like right now, um, I've gone, I progressed from just like a solo beekeeper doing it on a bunch of different farms um, for pollination. Um, what was really cool is I didn't really need the money at, t- at the time, so people were just kind of paying me in fruits, vegetables, and and whatever, which was really chill. And connections, which is its own kind of enriching thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But. Yeah, now I work for this scientific and data research company that works with all pollinators but specializes in honeybees. It's called Best Bees. And what we do is we just we manage beehives for people on their properties, and that's either residential or commercial buildings. Um, and from there, we can conduct research. So every beekeeper scientifically trained to, to track and manage a beehive, which is already a whole step up from what I used to do just as a solo beekeeper, read a book, watch a video, try and try mm-hmm. it out, try not to kill a bunch of bees. Mm-hmm. But now there's like science and data and backing to like the things we want to try out. And as a person without a science background, it's just super eye opening to see how that can factor in, you know, into the managing these colonies, which are like little tiny cities of these bugs that want to do one thing, which is keep nature alive. Mm. And it's just, it's super cool to get this opportunity to work for this company. And um, it's progressed me out of the farmlands. Well, I still work on the farmlands, but into the cities. And really understanding what a biodiverse city looks like versus what a biodiverse farmland looks like versus what a biodiverse, like if you just chuck a hive in the woods and you keep it on your Google Maps and try hope that nobody knocks it over. Like the differences between the, the, the ones are eye-opening. And so... And also just like the fact that they exist in a lot of metropolitan cities. So we're, we're one beekeeping company in an industry of beekeeping companies, which exists in almost every metropolitan city. So mm-hmm. almost anywhere you go, there's probably a beehive, like within, not within reach, but then within like how far you can throw a rock probably, which is pretty cool. Okay. That's, that's pretty interesting. You know, uh, we're here in Seattle, we're in a, mm-hmm. a huge metropolitan, um, area. Yeah. Um, and it's getting more and more dense yeah. and you know the i you we were talking about just like you know bees are becoming popular and yet yeah. it, it almost seems like there's this whole industry that's behind the scenes mm-hmm. right we i you don't see the beehives like we yeah. don't we don't really see them um and yet you know they seem to play a really important role like also in these cities yeah. um but i i wanted to like I want to back up and I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit about, um, you know, just like, f- like the nature of bees and like where, like where bees, how bees came to be. Yeah. You know? and, and, you know, you said you work with honeybees, right? Right, right. Um, and well, so first of all, are honeybees, are, are honeybees, they're not native to this continent, is that correct? That is correct. So they're native to... Europe and Asia. Um, I think there are some also in, well, at least the honeybees that we work with are usually European, which also track over into like Russia and then Japan. So those kind of the classic ones that you see that can, you know, farm hundreds of pounds of honey a season. Um, But yeah, so, but what's cool is that there's just a bunch of different microclimates there. And um, so yeah, they were brought over from the in the 1600s over to the United States, America, Mm -hmm. right? And we have native pollinators here, which are much different. So you've got the bumblebees, like the classic black and yellow ones, big fuzzy guys. Um, the one of the ones that I really like around here is called the orange belted bumblebee. And it's mm. like a really fuzzy, very kind panda-like bee. But um, 
But yeah, we're. I'm also working with a research company this season. Um, they're local to the northwest here, called Crown Bees, and they're going to be supplying us with something called the Blue Orchard Bee. And so, and what's really unique and different to all these types of bees, the, the native um, American bees versus like these European slash Asian types, is that the ones that we use for our pollination and agriculture, the the honey bee, they are social bees. And the native ones that are native to our area um, are not, not antisocial, but solitary. Um, so they kind of work, their hives aren't huge. They don't hold thousands of bees. The honeybee hive in the apex of the summer is like 70,000, but the, uh -huh. the native bee is like, it's just a solitary bee. It goes out, pollinates, brings back, lays an egg, and then that egg is set for next season. Like, oh, okay. That's like its job. I did not know that. You said a few terms there that I just I wanted to catch okay. because I think it's, it's sometimes it's easy to assume that we know what mm -hmm. we mean by these things because we, um, you know, I grew up, you know, especially like, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a love gardening. Um, yeah. I've wor I, I, I work with plants. Um, mm -hmm. I've worked in native plant nursery, and so I, I really, I really understand pollination. Like mm -hmm. that's something that is just sort of ingrained in, in yeah. the understanding of my world. But I. I think there's just something really sort of remarkable about pollination mm -hmm. that sometimes gets skimmed over, right? Yeah. Like this, we're talking about a a biological way of reproducing. Yeah. Um, that, in the grand scale of sort of the the history of this planet, hasn't been around for too long, right? Mm -hmm. It's sort of a newer. Uh, yeah. Emergent phenomenon of reproduction um, right. in the in the in the flora world, yeah. and I wanted to, I, I'm really interested to hear like how you describe like what pollen is yeah. um, and what pollination is, and and then also like if we could get into a little bit about like how the role that bees play, honeybees or otherwise, um, in in this uh, this sustaining of life, right. Definitely. Um, pollination is just super duper important in our ecosystems. It's how the plants reproduce. And what a, what a bee will do is they're kind of like the vector for that to happen. So like flowers exist for pollination for the plants and fruiting, which is like a, the next step of like how they reproduce. But the flowers must pollinate each other. They must mate with each other in order for them to fruit and then continue on their lives their lives as plants and so the the bee or the pollinator so the pollinator can also be like a moth or a butterfly mm. or a hummingbird mm. but the bees so we'll use bees for example the bees will then jump onto the flower because they like its scent they like its color they like there are things about the flower that just entices them and they go in and they can take the pollen which in their world is a protein source mm. so each flower has pollen nectar and the bees can go in and take the nectar as well for nectar is like a, a sugar water-ish kind of kind of drink for them some of the more solitary bees just use that as like a quick energy source but the the honey bee can can take and digest and hold that and bring it all back into the hive oh the nectar as well yes the nectar so the pollen and the nectar for the honey bee can be used in their hives um, for food but in its in like the transactional sense it's kind of like the bait for it to be like a you know, like, hey, this is good for you. This is good for me. It's a good for nature thing from the flower's point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, but that that's how it attracts the bee, and then the bee can then hop from one flower to another, and then 
successfully complete that transaction of of like the mating between the two flowers if that makes sense yeah um so while it collects the pollen like pollen goes from one flower to another drops drops off from the flower one to flower two if you will mm -hmm. and then completes that that circuit mm -hmm. and then the bee gets nectar out of it mm -hmm. and then the nectar and the residual pollen comes back into the beehive the nectar gets converted into honey through a couple different processes and the pollen is used as a protein source, which is used to feed the larva or the growing bees. Um, so it's like a win-win-win across like the nature board. Everybody gets something. Yeah. And it allows the the coolest part is it allows the plants to grow, which then creates more food, which can create more food for more bees, and then it's just it all just kind of covers itself throughout the season. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Thank you for that. that it, it is like. <laughs> Yeah, pollination just is, you know, I think with it, there's been a bit of like a, I know in recent news uh, with with all of the happenings around climate change, mm -hmm. um, you know, bees have been, I, th I think, bee advocates have done a really good job of um, bringing to the public's attention the, one, the importance of bees um, for pollination, um, for agriculture, um, but also you know, what I've been learning is also just the importance, uh, the role they play, not just for human value and being able to sustain our own uh, systems and economies and livelihoods, um, but also, you know, all of ecology. Yeah. And so I'm curious, you know, with, with the work that you do and with Best Bees, you know, are y'all, um, it sounds like to me, you're, you're trying to tackle sort of all these different um, areas or arenas of you know values of, of bees um, mm -hmm. both for humans but also just you know e you know everything as yes. well um, and so how did like you know it sounds like you know it, it's really cool for one that you know you say you don't have a background in science but here you are sort of playing this role as a, as a researcher um, I think that's really cool um, yeah. I find myself sort of having a similar uh, identity like I don't have a science background either mm -hmm. an arts background um, but I, I really see like, you know, as like, as the world grows and, and seemingly becomes busier and busier and we're all sort of tied down with our, with our own endeavors, you know, there seems to be almost like more and more of a divide, at least optically, of, you know, between like the sciences and the arts. And yeah. I just love, you know, meeting folks who are really kind of bringing those two worlds together yeah. in this unified way and it sounds like you know that's a lot of what um, Best Bees does as well right um, but if you want to talk a little bit about like um, yeah how what are y'all finding with this research um, what is the research what data are you collecting um, and and um, yeah you said and you've been doing it for like the past two years I think yeah specifically this that right yeah that stuff just about two years um, one thing I do want to bring back to is that I know that you and I probably grew up with the term STEM, like, was it science, technology, oh, yeah. engineering, uh, math, maybe? Yeah, yeah. But now it's STEAM. I don't know if you know about that. Like, no. There's an A okay. there for arts. Oh, and it, and nice. I think that, that community is just, like, opening their eyes that, like, this is important. And just like how we see beekeeping as a science, it is just as much as an art. Mm. 
But um, but yeah, so I was like, I was really excited when he said that. I was like, steam, like, I like steam. That. It's steam, and it's it's that's what the future is now. Yeah, and it's getting so, steamy. Yeah, it's getting steamy. Yeah, keep that humidifier on. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, but yeah, no, we've we've got a lot of we've got just a ton of ideas, and what's really cool, like from like the bare bones aspects of sustainability, is that Best Bees is one of those companies that really just like like puts their money where their mouth is. Because I'm a person of color, you can't see this on the podcast. But a person of color with no experience in science is now getting a job in science, like, mm-hmm. and in leadership. I manage the city here in Seattle, and the, the team of beekeepers which I have, and they're really just like you know they they're rolling their dices on me, and it's paying off. And mm-hmm. we're finding so much about Pacific Northwest beekeeping. Um, so there's a lot of stuff we can cover here, but some of the biggest parts is understanding the longevity of beehives in a city because mm-hmm. that has just not really been tracked before. Um, as climate change hap- climate change happens, it's because our you know our places our ecosystems are changing. We need buildings to conduct business to make I guess human lives work better. Mm-hmm. So we're really take we're tackling like biophilia and how does that like incorporate into our corporate lives, if you will, for this economy. And so we put beehives on rooftops and track data and bee longevity. Like how long do these gene lines of bees like succeed? throughout years and years and years and years. Like, do we have to continue replenishing bees on rooftops, which we haven't seen that much of? And so one of the other things that we do on top of that is so geographically we're finding out where bees survive. We're also trying to find out and track what are, is honey comprised of. So we have a technology called mm. Honey DNA, and it's um, it's just like 23andMe. Mm. We can send, yeah. uh, we have a lab in Denver where we send our samples to, um, and each sample will then show like what the percentages of each uh, sample of honey has. So are bees really liking blackberry this season? Are bees really liking sunflowers, lavender? And so that is then tracked into the maps that we're building. And we are going, we're, we're trying to apply the blue zones theory. I don't know if you heard of that. Yeah, I do know about yeah. blue zones. We're yeah. talking about um, a like different metrics to under like built uh, based on communities um to measure like i don't know i guess like that like the well-being of a community yeah. and sustainability or is it mostly about like wellness and, and happiness yeah yeah so um what what is needed to in that community to right. make sure that it's it's a yeah thriving community exactly and so like the, the most simplest way that we put it is like we're in the human blue zones um, there's seven in the world and the life expectancy is longer. Okay. And one of the biggest things that they found there is the biodiversity and the diet of the human is a contributor to a better life expectancy, a better quality of life. Mm-hmm. And so how do we apply that to bees? <laughs> so mm-hmm. we can then map out where we're keeping these bees and then we can track the biodiversity of their diet through honey DNA. And we can actually get a readout of percentages and like quantities. And what we're finding in cities is that the biodiversity is higher um, for many, many different reasons. Because the, the honeybee, which is our indicator species, which is why we use it, it's just really easy to, to, to understand a honeybee because it's been part of the agricultural world for so long mm-hmm. versus like solitary bee. We'd probably mess up for a few years before we could get to this point. Hmm. But anyways, but um, but yeah, so the, the ways that we can track and then map out those spots will essentially give us a blue zones space for honeybees. Oh, okay. Yeah just really exciting yeah yeah okay so yeah that's that seems really cool to have a way 
you know, using honeybees as an indicator um, of like, yeah, the diversity uh, base and using like this, this same approach to, um, you know, the thriving of, of a human community. And um, yeah, I really like that. And I, I kind of want to, you know, I've been thinking about bees, you know, uh, sort of coming up to this day where we, we get to record here. Um, and, you know, I like, so do you know how long, for instance, humans have been working with bees? Like when, I'm, like agriculture has been around for, you know, 10,000 odd years, but when did, when, do you know like when bees, um, in terms of keeping hives and, mm-hmm. and um, using them systematically to pollinate crops? Yeah. It's been thousands of years. Like, wow. like it's been there. Like, I don't, I, don't quote me on this, but there's like older, older like pieces of it that have shown through like throughout history, like maybe on a cave painting of like a bee. And then it's kind of crazy to think about like what our relationship is to that and why yeah. that exists. Um, one of the terms in the beekeeping world is called propolis, okay. which is like it's a material that's made out of like. Uh, tree sap and a couple different things but it's what it's what allows the beehive like cities like the houses to be like antiviral antimicrobial it helps helps their immune systems fight but then if you take that word propolis it's a greek word which is before the city which has been seen in just like so far back in history huh yeah propolis Propolis. means before the city yeah Okay. okay pro and then polis so wait so why why is that the terminology then that's used to to hold this concept or this this what is it it's like a tree sap it's a tree sap that uh so like if you have a box of beehive they have to propolize the hive before they really start getting to work with it it essentially closes up any seams for like invaders to come in Mm -hmm. um, whether that be disease or other bees that want to come in Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's a hardened piece if you ever watch a beekeeper like go through a hive and you see them kind of like popping seams out or like yeah pieces apart that stuff is stuck together, glued together by the propolis. Yeah. And so it's it's the first thing you see when you go into a hive. So it's really funny that it's been that been such a part of this world for that long that it's had a war that's had a name that's that has like lived for centuries. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. You know, I so I when I was living in Hawaii, um, I used to live on an old uh, magnet farm mm-hmm. on the Big Island, and uh, I was up in the hills above Hilo and. I used to like bike, bike down into town, um, you know, especially like when I had my beat up old island car was not working in the shop, which was more frequent than I like to admit. But it, you know, I would zoom down the hill on my bike, and there was always this um, a row of, of beehives. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a, is there a word for for hives that are like like a, like a way to differentiate between a, a, a human built hive for bees mm-hmm. and then. Um, or structure for bees to build their hive in versus a, 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 a okay. naturally occurring hive that a bee uh, um, communicates. Well, there's like the I cannot remember the name of it right now, but it's like yeah. it looks like a mound. Yeah. With a little door in it, and it's gonna kill me as a experienced <laughs> beekeeper. Everyone who's listening is like, it's dead. <laughs> they're, um, they're on the edge of their like, seats. Yeah, say oh. the word. It's, um, it's gonna come back to me in thirty seconds. Yeah, but. Well, yeah. <laughs> Regardless, yeah. Um, I, I just had I just had this like fond memory, although I, I may not have liked it as much in the moment, but like on my bike going downhill and always like bracing myself because mm-hmm. 
they they put you know the farmers or, or whoever would put the the hives like right next to the to the road mm. and you know they're it's, they're very active in the, during I guess I don't know it must have been like the morning or so it's warming up yeah um, but you know I, I assume they were there to pollinate the the mac nut uh, mm-hmm. trees macadamia nuts yeah sure um, but I'd always like bike through and they, you know a, a the the edge of their sort of swarming around their hives would I would always hit them and yeah <laughs> and so they like just became like. And I'd, I'd always get like worried. At first, I was like worried for myself, but then mm-hmm. I, it like I was like, "Oh, they're not. I'm I'm totally fine." And then like I'd start to get worried about them. Like, "Oh, I I don't want to like. I hope I don't hit any this time yeah. down." Yeah. It's, and I just started to build like my own little relationship with these bees. Yeah. And, and but it it, it kind of made me think about like, you know, <sighs> there is something about bees, and maybe more honeybees because mm-hmm. you mentioned they're they're social, right? Mm-hmm. Versus the solitary bees that we. You describe that are they make up the native population here, um, but you know they there's something about like I think that we we can sort of inherently connect to of of um, you know beehives and this idea that they live in these you know vast numbers and they you know are are communicating and, and coordinating mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, living in what, what, what almost akin to like cities, you know, the, like these big, you know, dense hives, um, mm-hmm. and living on top of each other. Um, but just like, you know, I think like superficially, right. There, yeah. there, there's a lot that like we, uh, you know, that we can see and be like, yeah, there's, there's something to relate to, but, um, I don't know, like I'm, I'm curious about like, yeah, the, especially like honeybees, if we can just focus on that, like. Um, humans have been working with honeybees for a long time, mm-hmm. um, but also, you know, maybe pre like modern science, right? Mm-hmm. Even thought, you know, if we're talking thousands of years ago, and what ha- do you know, like what we have learned about? Because I'm like I'm mystified mm-hmm. by how bees are able to do what they do. Yeah, like the fact that they are like one of the things that I, th- I think about a lot is how they locate mm-hmm. um, um, sources of food. And, and then are able to, like, communicate the source of that food yeah. to all the other honeybees. Yeah. And, and, and then they and they can go and find it. Like, yeah. How does... Do you know, like, like what do you know and what have you learned about... Um, well, this is kind of a two-part question. Yeah. What do you know, what have you learned about sort of the nature of bees and honeybees and, and how they're able to do what they do? Yeah. Um, and, um, and then also, like, your own personal relationships, sort of what you, how you've come to find, um, maybe what you've learned about the world itself, or, or yourself, or how you relate to bees. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, many, there's so many ways I want to answer that. Mm. <laughs> so many things. Um, I guess first we'll tackle like the bees, and then I'll talk about like our relationships to them. But yeah, yeah so the bees, yeah, the bees play such a huge role in nature, and. I think that if you we one of the big things that I always like to ask myself when I work on beehives, especially coming into a new season, taking all the information you've learned previous years, like how do we just kind of get them back to what nature meant for them to be? Mm-hmm. Um, the way that beehives have been managed now are run through something called a Langstroth hive. I remember the term we were thinking of. It's called a skep. That's oh, what the those skep. mounds are. But okay, then, but then if you just like a, just a bunch of hives, it's an apiary. But I see. Scap and apiary. Yeah. Um, a Langstroth hive is a design from the 1600s when they really started beekeeping, but it's it's uh, it's like squares. It kind of looks like a filing cabinet 
with mm -hmm. removal pieces so you can inspect beehives. Um, because legally, at least in America, and I think also in the UK, you're supposed to be able to remove the hot, like the hive frames and pieces so you can inspect them for diseases so that diseases don't carry around um, to other apiaries. Um, but that being said, um, think about it this way, or this is how I like to think about it. If you had to live in a building that was designed in the 1600s, would you be able to survive it today? Oh, gosh. Definitely not. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And this technology is still being used and standardized throughout this work, which we're trying to improve, right? And so a lot of the work, like, it's just like a kind of like a confined box. It mm -hmm. kind of reminds you of, like, those office buildings from, like, the 70s and 80s that are just, like, concrete. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, depressing to be inside. Mm -hmm. And so one of the biggest things I tried to do last year was really apply the idea of biophilia biophilia into the highs which is just you know like it's it translates to the love of nature right yes so it's yeah. the the concept of bringing nature back into human like office places or even just like places where you live so that you don't feel so secluded from nature because nature's good yeah and so that being said um i'm trying to understand like you get to take yourself out of the equation and then you get to work with the bees and see what the bees want from nature and so the from its like most bare form, like where do we see beehives survive the longest if we never tended to them? Or where would they have chosen to live mm. if we didn't pick the boxes and place them into there? So the first one would be, um, they live really well inside the insulations of people's walls. Like, cause I'm sure you've seen those videos where people will be like, this beehive has been in my family's <laughs> garage for 30 years. And it's like, the survivability rate for, for beehives being managed in the United States was 51% last year. And it's like, people are oh. fighting to keep beehives alive. Wow. <laughs> Whereas like... 51%. Uh, yeah. So like, just barely more, more live than dead die. Yeah. And then, so you think about that, whereas like someone will have a, a beehive living in their shed for 30 years and they just let it, let it rip. Um, yeah. There's so much to learn from that. And yeah. the biggest takeaway for me is that A, it's undisturbed for long periods of time. Um... And then if you look at the structure of the comb, it runs vertically for a long time. And so like, like just like up the top of the wall to the bottom of the wall and yeah. it's skinny and long. I um, see. I so see. a couple concepts there. Um, the standard beehive or standard beekeeper will probably check their hive every two weeks. Mm. The hive that's in the shed never gets checked. So like as we, yeah. pull, as we rip it apart, rearrange things and like manage resources, we're almost doing a detriment to them. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. It seems like there, maybe there's something even like that, that mandatory of needing to check for diseases, that, that yeah. actual design kind of gets in the way. Yeah, it kind of bites itself, you know, and it's, it's, it's almost counterintuitive, especially from a scientific standpoint, because mm -hmm. we want to collect data, we want to understand. But that being said, if we answer the other question, like where would bees choose to live if they didn't have us picking the place where we want to put them to pollinate, right? Mm -hmm. um, so take ourselves out of that equation. They go into tree, like rotting tree hollows. Mm -hmm. And then what do we know about a rotting tree hollow? It's, it's not completely sealed, mm -hmm. you know? It's not something oh. that can be picked up and moved around. So these are all things that we want to minimize throughout the beekeeping season. And if you have a friend who's got a, a beehive in a tree <laughs> hollow and they're like, yeah, it just comes back every year. And I've got a few friends of that, and I just love, like, going and looking at it. Hmm. Take some photos of it. And the first thing you do if you ever take a photo of, like, the entrance, you see that propolis in there. And yeah. it's almost like a doorway. So they'll propolize into a little tiny hole where bees can come in, bees can come out. But most other insects, so a bigger wasp, may have a hard time. 
Right. So talking about like where the bees would choose to live and what we can learn from that. So again, like the tree hollow, they would go into a tree hollow and live there just for for almost a decade or so, right? And they just continue their... their that's uh, about how long a, a hive can persist? Um, well, that's like a few de- generations of queens. Um, yeah, so, the yeah. queens turn over every For season? Every... It depends. So a uh, queen can live... I don't want to say a good queen, because it's like a weird measurement. But a queen can live <laughs> two to four productive seasons in like the proper you know elements and, and variables. But she can be requeened um, naturally, and that can just happen in the middle of a season. Or they can swarm, and then they'll build a new queen themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so the few different things that we can get out of that is just like where where they choose to live. The almost again that idea of verticality in the tree hollow is it can go up or down for expansion, and then creating longer combs, but also that breathability of the tree. Um, naturally, the Langstroth hive design is almost just like it's just like cut off on the bottom it's a solid piece of wood at the top it's a solid piece of wood and there's like entrances at the top or the bottom depending on how you like to beekeep but in the tree hollow it's not like that it's not a solid bottom it's not a solid top it breathes and so once some of the things that we're doing here in the pacific northwest especially with moisture being our biggest issue yeah um We are adding, and we've been adding a couple different pieces to create a ventilation, almost a verticality to it, where the bottoms are screens versus solid pieces of wood. And the tops are met with screens with kind of like a, like a moisture re- reducing attic style. Um, and that's just super cool. It's just, and if you look at those books that were written years ago that people like live and like stick to, it's like their Bible, like they have nothing to say about that. Hmm. And then there's a couple of different things like the book on the Langstroth and why it's designed for X amount of boxes. Um, we're finding so much more by like re- almost not rewriting the book, but just really testing the rules that, that are set there. Mm-hmm. Some examples are um, the Langstroth like is designed to overwinter in two boxes. So overwinter meaning there's enough food in these two boxes for them to survive a winter and you don't want to do any more because it's too, too much space for them to keep warm. Or you don't want to do too less because there's not going to be enough food. Right. Um, less food to is something... To store the food. To store the food, right. For the winter, for them to, for the cluster to, to move and eat. Um, one thing I've been pushing against that with is here, at least in Seattle, we've, we're finding a ton of success overwintering in three boxes. So more verticality again and spread it, kind of spreading the the food sources into a more vertical form than a horizontal form mm. really emulating the inside of that wall that we've been thinking about or what the tree hollow could be because um, if you think about inside the Langstroth it's 10 frames and then the bees sit in clusters there a cluster can move up and down a comb without any issues but if it has to hop from one comb to the other kind of horizontally, that's when like they break. And then in the colder winters, they need to stay in a cluster to retain a 98 degree temperature. So like, so yeah, the question is like, how do we keep those food things like near the middle and not break the cluster? You just go up and down versus left and right. And it's just like, there's nothing about that in the book. Yeah. But that plays into the role of like, how do humans have a relationship with bees? Before in the olden times, like the relationship was always, this is where my food comes from, you know? 
And what's cool about working with a company like Best Bees, they, they pay me for a full-time job. So I don't have to think about pulling honey out of the hive just to make a living. Yeah. I can now think about like, what is our new relationship to understand and f- help you survive bees versus you help me survive by giving me honey to sell to people yeah. to be able to pay for my bills. You know, now it's, if I can continue to make you live longer, <laughs> I can understand and really just focus on your success yeah yeah which is just it's just mind-blowing that at this point in like the lifespan of humans that we're, we're taking those steps sustainability is very serious and that's why like it's been taken so seriously by so many big companies now mm-hmm. not that that should be like a litmus test as to how serious it is. everyone's mm-hmm. been talking about sustainability from 80s 90s or whatever right climate mm-hmm. change is real um but it's it's now getting the funding to be able to be worked on and it can be people's like lifestyles and like to find those solutions and everyone's getting a shot now which is really cool because if we just continue to do what the book says like we're just going to continue with the survivability rate of half right yeah and, right. and, and accept that as like well that's just yeah. how it is yeah but that's just really cool i just i just hate accepting that's how it is mm-hmm. you know it's like there's always going to be something we can look at differently and then we use science and data to back those yeah, it kind of reminds. Did you ever read? Um, I'm blanking on the author. Um, the One Straw Revolution, a Japanese farmer. Um, no. Who? Oh, it's a brilliant book. Um, I'll, I'll have to. I'll have to think of the name, and I can. I can let everyone know. But it, it's similar approach. Uh, but you know, he came at it from this aspect of like, I'm just gonna. He took over his his father's farm. And it was, uh, I think, mostly his father uh, grew oranges. Mm-hmm. And um, he took it over. I, I, I can't remember why if his father passed away or needed help or something. Um, but he, he described himself as like a, as a, he, he worked in a lab prior uh, doing some sort of lab work. Um, and, but he... He went out to the farm to start farming it, but he, he was like, I was not a farmer. I was the laziest farmer you could imagine. And, um, but what he was good at was just watching. And what he, he liked to do is he just, he just took the time to see what was going on. Mm-hmm. And it's like what you were describing, you know, take, take the human out of yeah. the equation mm-hmm. for a second. Right? Yeah. Um, on, the, on the vast, you know, time scale of, of evolution. And observe how things are thriving you know without you know a a human context Mm -hmm. and then take what you are seeing and and model that you know like design it or create it right it seems Mm -hmm. like some of our best designs in the world are inspired by nature right and it's this win-win-win approach Mm -hmm. so essentially what this farmer did is he he claims that he was able to you know have that human outcome of, of high yield of food mm-hmm. and he said I, I, could, I could do a higher yield of food than any conventional method of farming um, but he he said without putting with, with, with less like input mm-hmm. um, whether that was you know um, some sort of inorganic input or like you know fertilizing the soil or just human labor yeah. um, and he, he said he did it all by just allowing things to kind of happen on their own and 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 see how like nature is already life has already evolved in the way Mm -hmm. to to thrive 
right? Like yeah. we humans are just, we're a small piece of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if we can somehow orient ourselves in the way that we're approaching human success, you know, married with the success of all life, mm-hmm. it turns out it can all thrive. Like right. we tend to think of things in this very sort of competitive I don't know, outlook, and it's, it's kind of depressing, but yeah. it seems like the more we actually slow down and mm-hmm. observe what's happening, there's a, there's a very different thing going on, and I feel like bees are such a, a you know, a exemplar of that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's something about, like, and I wanted to also kind of get into, like, I don't know, like, intelligence is a really interesting topic to me, too, like, human intelligence, bee intelligence, mm-hmm. um, and, um, have you ever like have you heard about like like the bee dance? Yeah, the waggle dance. Yeah, what yeah. is what is that? So it's just um say bees find a patch of a ton of food. So like say it's a blackberry patch northwest from here, three hundred feet. They'll do a certain dance which will show that direction and distance into the hive. So like a bee will like, hey, check out what I found. It's right over here. And then they'll do the dance. And everybody understands that that's where it goes. Um, the pollination of the, of the honeybee, so this is a differentiator for the different kinds of bees, it's usually just point A, point B, if you will. So they're literally bee lining. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Which is where you see the diversity in, in different pollinators. So like the solitary bees can go and hop flower to flower to flower on their trips. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's difference there's differences in in styles of pollinating, which is really important. But yeah, the bee dance is, is that c- communication that creates that almost efficiency. Okay, okay. So they're they're doing this waggle dance to mm-hmm. communicate to their fellow, mostly mostly females, right? Exactly. So all all foragers are females. Okay, so they're so they're fellow sisters of like here's a food source. Yes. Okay. So but but the. the I mean, we are, we are a language, we, we humans, we use language, uh, in, you know, linguistically, but we also have a, you know, our own like symbolic language of, you know, mathematics, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and it's, it's like, how are these bees? I I can understand like a dance, but how are you, how is a bee? What exactly are they communicating? Like how, like I can communicate a location Mm -hmm. based on just, you know, words and, Mm -hmm. and. And phrases that we have directional, but they're not, they're, they're just waggling. What is, how, how is that like significant information? Do you know? Like, I think it's like an, an angle, like a pitch to where the abdomen is facing. Oh, wow. And so, and I don't know this exactly, but mm. I would assume that it's like the dance length is probably the distance or at least just, or at least because of their sensories. The dance. Okay. Like um, how many waggles right. or something is how, but many I'm not, this is totally not scientifically back what I'm saying. So yeah, do yeah. I say that? No, but, we, we're purely, someone might know yeah, this information. Right, yes. it, might, it might be known, but, but yeah. it's, it's but interesting I, to speculate. Yeah. I would assume that for sure. But then you have to also consider the fact that like, if they have the direction alone, their ability to sense things is like, is pretty good. So it's pheromones, which they used to communicate. Um, so like mm. if they were to go if like like yeah fly this way, they could smell a blueberry patch I'm sure. Mm-hmm, like if they're mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. flying that direction. Okay, they said it's around here. Right? So yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. You just need yeah. a general direction yeah. that you know, and once you know you've gone a certain yeah. amount of distance, you can start using they can start using their other senses. Yeah, too. and then those foragers forage for like ten days. Yeah, and so like they'll know tomorrow where to go, and then yeah, yeah. so they the location 
their location services are pretty solid. And then you use, sorry, I'm just like nerding out right now. Good, you, you said another word earlier, which uh, you used the term swarm. Mm-hmm. Um, what is swarming? I assume it has something to do with um, this like uh, turning over of a hive. Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. Swarm is really important. Um, and this is another thing which I love. I love to go against the book. Uh-huh. Um, the book always is most of the time is like swarming is terrible because your honey yields will be lower. So swarming. Oh. So, so that's that would be the preface, right? Okay. So the the swarming procedure is the existing queen of the hive makes a decision, or the other bees make a decision that they need to swarm. And those reasonings can be lack of space, um, or simply the fact that this place is so great we just need to um, like multiply. Right, mm-hmm. so the queen will leave with fifty percent of the bees. Okay, half and then, the yeah, half and then go into a tree. And so how that process happens is uh, they they say we're gonna swarm tomorrow, and then so the like the scout bees will go out and find a branch like that's a good spot, and then they'll go back, and then the queen will go there, mark it with her pheromone, and then all the bees will come into that. The, the, ha- the half of the yeah, or sorry, half the bees there, yeah. and that that all pheromone. of the half, yeah. all of the half, 50, all of the fifty percent of the bees. <laughs> oh yeah, um, so that that branch is marked. That's where the bees go, and then it's that's that like mound of bees in and, there, and they're just sort of huddled there, they're just huddled momentarily, there. temporarily. Yeah, temporarily because a couple things happen. So before before that flight, they gorge themselves on a ton of honey, and my favorite like uh, metaphor for that is like after Thanksgiving dinner, you eat a ton of food. Mm-hmm. And then, because... So, sorry, backtrack. So they go and they eat a ton of honey because they know they have to make a big trip. Mm-hmm. Okay, but yeah. they eat so much honey Logical. that they're, like, they're full. So they go for their first trip because it's a ton of flying. If you ever see a swarm, it looks like a tornado. They're up in that tree, and they're actually really calm because they're so full. Mm-hmm. So you'll see a lot of beekeeper videos where they just stick a bare hand into the into the swarm and pull their hands out. The bees yeah. aren't doing anything yes, to you. seen that. Because yeah. they're chilling. Um, but that's so. That's what happens. They go in there, and then, but they've still got a ton of honey for another trip, um, mm-hmm. in case because they want to keep going up vertically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is where they go to multiply. And what's left in the hive is fifty percent of the worker bees, and a ton of eggs. Um, and the, the eggs can come in different forms. The eggs, the egg life cycle is four days from an egg, and then it hatches to a larva from. Mm-hmm. Days four and a half to eight, and then the larva gets put into a cocoon, which we call a capped brood, and then it stays that cocoon from days eight and a half to day twenty-two, about so about three weeks, right? Three weeks. But in that in that time period, um, the bees can turn an irregular egg into a new queen in like a few hours. They they build a different um, a different shaped cocoon for her called a queen cell. Which is like, it looks like a peanut versus like the size of the regular worker bee cell is like the size of a pill. Mm. Kind of like those regular pills that you take, Mm -hmm. Tylenol or so. Mm -hmm. But so they build a bigger cell for her, they give her a different diet, and sometimes they make backup queens just in case something happens. The queen emerges and she's the new queen. She can go out and kill those other backup queens, and then she's the queen. Wow, okay. But sometimes that doesn't work out perfectly. Yeah. So um, one of those other queens might escape, and she's like, I got to get out of here. And then she goes up to a tree. The bees think that they're swarming again. So then now your half becomes a quarter. Oh. A quarter and a quarter. It's called a cast swarm, and this can keep going. And it's not terrible. Yeah. Um, you may get a less of a honey yield, but you if you catch those swarms, that's three beehives that you have. I you know. see. So you, you one can... 
one can catch these bee swarms yeah. and then create a new house. A new home. And what's bad about that is that there are things in the book mm-hmm. that teach you how to manage that. And it's just, in my experience with the 70 or so hives that I managed last year, if you implement those things, you just give yourselves another 50% shot of success. Because if, like, some people will say in the book, like, remove existing queen cells after the swarm, but leave the two best ones just in case so that you don't have a cast swarm happen and you don't lose all of your your yield. Um, So there's that. Or people will say, just clip all the queen cells so they don't swarm. And then you've just kind of, like, fought nature there. Yeah. Really unnatural. I don't like it. The best, like... I call it a remediation to this to seeing things because sometimes before they swarm they make those queen cells and they look like peanuts that are about to pop. Yeah. So you can go be going through a hive and see these queen cells. Yeah, you, um, you can catch them before they. Well, what you catch. can do is simulate the swarm in what's called a split. You just find your queen, uh. half the bees, shake them into new boxes, and boom, you've got you, you've you've done the process. You've swarmed them for themselves. They'll mm-hmm. notice that if they're somewhere new. Mm-hmm. And then the box will just exist and then requeen itself. And then you've got yourself two hives and you haven't had to like, so working full-time bees, sometimes you work eight hours and the last thing you want to do is go back to another client and pick up another swarm out of a tree. Yeah. And so like, yeah. it's kind of like staying on top of it, but a little more natural. Yeah, I um, see. Okay. And so you're saying that's, that's something that like y'all have discovered is a, is a, is a better approach. Yes. Both for you and the bees. Yeah. Um, uh, just because there's so much, there's so many chances of something going wrong if you if you interfere that way by mm-hmm. by cutting out the queen cells, mm-hmm. which just some people I just it's just weird. Some beekeepers are just like, eh, I just learned how to do it this way. Hmm. I'm a master beekeeper. I know what I'm doing. And then they go and then they're then. So what happens if you if you do it wrong? You have a hive without a queen, and then they have to go somewhere and buy a new queen. And it's like, it's just and then you're going to a queen farm, which is a whole other topic of like. Oh wow. And those are. I'm not a big fan of those. Some people love them, huh. but it's it's another very unnatural thing in beekeeping. Uh, queen farms. Yeah. So well, well, queen distributor. Queen distributor. Yeah. Okay. So they they go and they they actually graft new queens. So think about that process again when we pull the queen out. The bees know that they have to develop a new queen. Yeah. You can actually use a tool to go into a cell like a a, a full honeycomb with a bunch of larvae, find the younger ones, pick it up. And then yeah. put it into like a plastic cell that's the shape of a queen cell. Yeah. And then you put that into a hive full of bees without a queen so that they think that they're building new queens. And then you go and you have 30 bees and you can sell them for 50 bucks a pop. Like, and then all of a sudden you're you're profiting off of the bees, which, hey, you know, you got to make a living, whatever. But like, but then there's there's chances of those queens not being the best queens. Yeah. So it, does, it, seems, like, it seems like perhaps the, the issue with that is that it can become more... Yeah. monetarily motivated it's yeah it's, it becomes more of a commercialized yeah item and it's such an easy target for like newer beekeepers who like maybe they're in the between that those two those two phases right and mm-hmm. they look into their hive and then they it's just their first year and there's nothing wrong with making mistakes but they're like my hive doesn't have a queen i have no evidence of queens no one's laid mm-hmm. any eggs but maybe that new queen's just going out to mate because the new queens have to mm-hmm. mate and it's a two-week process mm-hmm. um and they could just be going into that hive that time. And then, you know, all of a sudden you've just made money up for someone who's just a little naive in beekeeping, which everyone has been, you know. And yeah. it's just, it's kind of like, it's kind of predatory, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so, let's backtrack a bit. I mean, so tell me, tell me a little bit more about, um, 
Well, for, you know, you, you were saying that, like, bees are trendy, and they're becoming more popular. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we started talking about, like, um, you know, you, you said you're managing, what, 70 to 100 Yes. And that's just here in the city? Yes. Well, our apiaries are where we keep a lot of the backup hives. Okay. And that's over over in Woodville, so a little out by the wineries. So kind of run me through the process of like what your, I don't know, your day-to-day or your week-to-week responsibilities are. Okay. So I manage a beekeeping team, and we have clients throughout the city, whether they're on building rooftops, building parking lots. Some people keep them ground level to keep people engaged with the bees. Oh. Yeah. Um, or someone's backyard. I have some clients over wherever, and they just found us, and they want beekeeping, but they don't have the time to do it. Mm-hmm. So they're just like, we just want to support it, and we know you guys like to do science, so like we want our money to be, I like to say, be on the hive. Like You're making an impact mm. on the hive, so like you're not just contributing to your neighborhood's pollination, but the better library of knowledge that Best Bees holds and shares with our research partners. Um, but So we have clients who have beehives throughout the city, and... Um, we have scheduled like checks and it's like, so it's like, Hey, uh, this hive hasn't been checked in this many days. Um, I'll send one of my people out to go look at the beehive, come back, report it all, take their notes and then share it with the client, share it with our research partners. And that's kind of like the, the transaction of the business side of us. Mm-hmm. And so the beekeeper goes out and makes their best decision on how to continue with the hive and then just keep meticulous notes in case someone else needs to pick up that hive from where they're at. Mm-hmm. But inside that is we've got to build parts for beehives consistently as we consistently grow. We grew like 2.5 times the size we were last year. So no we're just, it we used to be myself and another beekeeper and now it's like myself and like seven beekeepers. You just, wow. we got to be like cranking it out. And as we continue to grow, the demand is just getting higher and higher because it is getting popular. Um, people see it on, there's like the whole bee talk is like a whole thing, like TikTok for bees. I like, haven't seen on TikTok yet, but <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to look that up now. But like Instagram and just like, yeah, it's, it's really popular for folks who want to make an impact, but just don't have the time or the body because like beekeeping is a physical job. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool. Like I meet a lot of beekeepers and a lot of beekeepers are pretty fit. Mm. Just because you, you're mm. out sweating all day, you have to walk out to an apiary, lift a box that's 100 pounds of honey. Yeah, you gotta already like that lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of what it is. And like for me, as I manage this team, it's like just knowing, trying to stay ahead of like the curve. And also we, we go out and constantly find more people who call in and say, hey, we want beehives in our backyard. So you got to make a deal with them. Mm. It's, a, it's a service just like you get a landscaper. And so That's so interesting. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, your, what, what y'all are selling is, it's really fascinating to me because it's, it's, you're, what you're selling is, is to people, it seems like is, is their desire to be helping in some way, Mm -hmm. um, ecologically. Yeah. Is that, is that right? Like what other, like a hundred percent. Wow. Yeah, that and um, the education piece is big too. So part of it is like some deals will have like meet the beekeeper or a hive tour mm. or we'll bring like 20 suits, especially like they're really popular with corporate clients or I'll just go out and talk to them. It's it's a big hit on Earth Day because that's about mm-hmm. when the beekeeping season starts for mm-hmm. us, at least in the Northwest. And it's like you just go and you tell them about all the facts of bees and then our science and how like their hive is contributing to this data library that we're building. Mm. Um but yeah, it's, it's crazy that that is like 
it's almost more lucrative to have that as a career versus a person who sells honey. Uh-huh, exactly. Because right. if you average it out to like how many beehives a person manages in that in our at least in our somewhat business model, um, it's like fifteen hives per person to to have a part time job to like live live like to live okay. Mm-hmm. Whereas like the the number as a honey sales person to sell as many jars like for that part alone it's always been like you need 50 beehives to produce enough honey for you to sell honey throughout the year to oh make ends meet yeah which is crazy because you know you saw the yeah you saw the factor in how many people need to buy 50 beehives worth of honey yeah like and then that's a whole thing and those business expenses but if you, like again like i said if you take away the need to sell honey um the relationship now becomes like just how do we understand bees better yeah not how do we have them crank out enough honey for us to live we if you do better yeah we we all live a little bit like like you said like with nature the more we can take a step back out Uh um it all brings itself up yeah because there's something about like that that it's that that beast of of capitalism that we all struggle with right where you have to keep feeding it and 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 so it's it's the, the you know the meeting the meeting the, the demand with the supply and, mm-hmm. and it's it's you don't have any more time mm-hmm. to do anything else because you're you're just you're constantly trying to meet this demand you know and make yeah. it profitable so that yeah. you know your the your company can survive and compete against the others and yeah. it's just like yeah when you take that out it's almost like this angst it's almost that that like you know there there's that that it's like it's almost like um a chronic stress, right, of constantly needing to, like, uh, worry about something. There's always the cortisol going through, and, and, mm-hmm. and we all know, like, you know, when we're, when we're stressed out, we don't have the capacity to think outside of that, right? It's, it's, it's very sort of myopic um, yeah. in, in what the bottom line is or what, you know, what you're trying to succeed in and, yeah. and to eliminate that, or at least to make that not the priority, like... Yeah, obviously these hives are still creating honey, right? Right, right. Um, you know, you 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 gave me a little jar of honey at the beginning, yeah. of this, which I so stoked about. Um, and and yet, um, you know, there seemed like to me, I think this is really interesting, and maybe perhaps it's part of the reason why it's becoming more popular. But I know that I've talked to a lot of folks, and um, I'm actually hoping to do a panel soon on this topic of like climate guilt. And like how the, the, the emotional response that we're having mm-hmm. towards seeing what's how the climate is changing and how mm-hmm. that's affecting, um, you know, catastrophic changes yeah. um, around around the globe, and the responsibility that we feel as as individuals, but also as as a collective, mm-hmm. um, and a sense of like helplessness, right? Yeah. And yet the burden of the guilt, right? Mm-hmm. Even though we feel there there's a there's a lot of helplessness feeling um it you know that means that there's not much that we can do with the negative emotions that are that are coming up as Mm -hmm. as as more and more of us are becoming aware um and yet here is a way you know i wonder if it's part of that is like a you know it's a feeling like you are participating in something that is a solution right and 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 what sounds really great about it as well is that you were talking about the education part. Mm-hmm. Like you're able to show yeah. how it's helping, yeah. right? And to see the impact and, and show the numbers mm-hmm. um, to all these, you know, whether it's you know uh, 
a commercial or a residential mm-hmm. um, client. Yeah. You know, hey, like this is what you're. It's very altruistic. Yeah. It's it's like um, it, it's a there, there's like a market for altruism now. Yeah. And it's 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 like brother is sustainability yeah and that's that's really cool and a big part of like how we approach the commercial side there's like i love the term climate guilt Mm -hmm. there's like certifications (laughs) and badges for these buildings that do better so like if you're a green or building it's called the lead score yeah l-e-e-d i forgot what it stands for l-e-e-d yeah Mm. environmental is somewhere there yeah but (laughs) and esg um so these are really important to these buildings and their budgets are huge. Hmm. And so they want to make the best impact. And in this, in the grand scheme of things, a solar panel is like $50,000, mm-hmm. a rainwater collection system, a lot. These are a quarter of that price, hmm. but with our science and data backing to what we do at best bees, like we can be like, it's, it might even be more of a, like, it might be more than that than that uh, solar panel and we do all the work for you and that's like that's the other key part like it's just turnkey solutions right that's the other buzzword that they love but there's that and one of the coolest things that we're finding out about um the the rooftops and the bees that we're using in the in the corporate areas is to think about go back to the swarm idea that the swarm goes out and it wants to keep flying up and up and up so the bees that we have downtown in seattle that are on like 23rd 24 stories are thriving they're incredible. Uh, uh. There's no other predators coming up there because who's going to accident, like what wasp is going to accidentally fly up 25 stories? Yeah. And these bees have no issues flying vertically to go back home and out. If anything, it's like, it's like dropping out of a, like a cargo ship and you're like, I needed to get to there. I'm already up here. It's going to be so much more efficient for me to fly and target that spot. Yeah. 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 And then what we're finding is that it, once you, if you already are looking at a green roof, you need a living element to keep it alive as well so the pollinators are then part of that green roof right mm-hmm. and then in like i forgot the average temperature that's dropped but buildings with green roofs are are dropping like temperatures which is the biggest thing like you know like mm-hmm. the, the heat so like mm-hmm. there's like the heat sink number mm-hmm. and so it's like you have the pollinator there it's contributing to that so the leaves that are absorbing all the sun are just contributing to more and more and then you can put like you can put a garden up there yeah, it's so just, this is amazing because now we're talking about like a urban uh, um, canopy right. ecosystem that we can create and design, mm-hmm. and now, and there's already like that like how quickly that can be developed because there's already now this this industry of yeah. beekeepers mm-hmm. that are like well we can provide the bees yeah um, and to that yeah so you when you're talking about like a just because I think it's an interesting point. Um, Although less relevant, the what was the word you used? The the heat sink. Yeah. So that's like like a a building gets hot and then needs right. to cool it down. But yeah. if you have a natural system, you don't have to spend yeah. the energy exactly. to cool that building down. Yeah, yeah. Or you don't have to like paint it one thing and then come back the next year repaint it. Then the danger of that. Yeah. There's so many different factors, right? Or like yeah. you'll have to go pay someone to go repaint your rooftop. Have you been able to? Um, I, I'm I'm curious about sort of like inspirations for yourself and, and work in the future um, and s- like seeing what other people are doing maybe in other countries have you been able to have opportunities to travel or to um, s- I'm hoping to I'm hoping to travel outside the United States to figure out more beekeeping stuff uh-huh. but throughout uh, my year last year for Best Bees I've gone to a few different conferences um, 
We have two very, very brilliant co-founders at Bespies, one of them being Noah Wilson Rich, PhD. He's taken me to a couple different things where he's spoken. He's done two TED Talks and he's just been like, it's just kind of cool to watch him go and then you go there, stick around, watch a couple more people talk about sustainability and climate. And it's just like, you can just take it in and suck it all in and just understand like different perspectives. Mm-hmm. So there's there's that opportunity, but I think I think that a diversity in knowledge is like, is just important. Like, uh, like I said, we're working with Crown Bees in Woodenville. Um, I just had a few brief meetings with their owner, and one of the coolest things that he's told me was, nature is just one thing. Nature is diversity. Mm-hmm. And it just always set in with me because there's always this kind of war between the honeybee people and then this, the solitary bee people. Mm-hmm. But as we work together, we just learn that there's so many different things. You can't put a solitary bee up on the 23rd floor. Like mm-hmm. they can't mm-hmm. fly that as much longer than the honeybee. So there's different things that we can check and balance each other. The solitary bee may be more of an efficient pollinator, but it can only pollinate May and July or May through July. Whereas like our food sources are year round. We can't just have food being produced in those two months. Like the, the honeybee will pollinate from March to November, pretty much in Seattle. Yeah. yeah. So like there's just so many different angles and, the coolest part is that, like, while this has been around for centuries, like, we're still scratching the surface. So yeah. there's so many discoveries to, to be made. And it's cool, like, at least where I sit in my office and, like, the impacts that I can make nationwide. Um, if I don't find the solution, I have, like, such a good feeling that I'm going to at least cross paths with the person who's found the solution. If not, be the person who goes up for some job. Or it's yeah. like it's just so cool to think about you know yeah. there's still so much and that's just me putting the positive spin on the world might end soon <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, oh, well, I was gonna add I was, that was yeah. gonna be my follow-up question just like where like you know you've been at this for a while now and I'm yeah. all, and and you know I, I, I sense a lot of excitement you know come a person from you but also just mm-hmm. the industry and, and yeah. what's being you know discovered experimented and um, and the collaboration that, mm-hmm. that, that is being, you know, formed form through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, yeah, like what, do you have more hope, you know, in terms of like where where we're headed from your perspective and, and working with bees? I do. I have a ton of hope. Just because like these opportunities are, are coming, they're here, and that like people just have a chance to try people who don't have a chance or who didn't who wouldn't have had a chance in like previous worlds or lifetimes have a chance to take a stab at it and it's just i think there's an abundance of opportunity and it's just going to take the right people but at the same time it's like where i sit i feel like i know everything that's going on in the b world and then i go and i meet another person who just hasn't crossed paths with me but their mind is just like this giant like book of knowledge yeah. we've taken on some new beekeepers this season who've been doing it as long as me yeah. it's just so fun to meet a new beekeeper who's just awesome okay so yeah. on the on that point you know mm-hmm. you you've stepped into this you know leadership role and yeah. this management role you're managing seven beekeepers yeah. that are, are going around and taking care of the hives right um and I, so what, what has that been like? Um, you know, it sounds like you're really inspired because now you get to be surrounded with folks that have all this knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you also mentioned, you mentioned earlier on of like, well, you just mentioned talking about, um, you know, nature is not a single thing. It's a diversity, right? Mm-hmm. How does that also play into sort of the diversity of humans within, you know, you know, maybe, maybe that you're managing or, or, or that, you know, that you're working with or uh, this industry, like the mm-hmm. diversity of ideas and, you know, how 
more and more knowledge and more and more new ideas can can bloom out of this. Yeah, it's really exciting. So from the first parts of of meeting new beekeepers with different experience, like there's just it's just a wealth of knowledge that you there's so many things that you overlook. Like I as a person who goes against the book every time you can meet another person who goes against 60% of the book and then those 60% of things work and then you're just like, ah, maybe I'll go revisit that again. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Mm -hmm. Um, in addition to that, it's just like the different life experiences that were you, that we're looking for in like our new beekeepers. Mm -hmm. Like I think I mentioned to you before, my background was fixing things in the Navy. I used to fix missile systems, which then, and I, you know, send tracking data between missiles if they're inbound. And then I went to fixing robots for Panasonic and I flew around the country and people who were building like iPhones can figure things out. So they call me, I'd figure that out. But like, there's parts of like that, like you mm -hmm. don't have to be a beekeeper to be a good beekeeper. Like, and mm -hmm. what I love is that we're giving opportunities to people who are artists, who are teachers, who are parents, who are you know, whatever you want to be or like musicians. And it's really cool because there are parts to that that really applied to the artist part of the beekeeper, which may have been overlooked from mm -hmm. a long time, but then you give them that, that like backbone of science to like make them like the complete person that you want to be a beekeeper. Yeah. And it's just, that's what I think is most exciting. It's no longer the same person who's beekeeping, which if you went to a bee club meeting, I, I would say 15 years ago, that's not the 90s anymore. 25 years ago, you'd see the same person there. Yeah. And then, but if you go to a bee club meeting now, it's like, there's so many people, you know, like, I'm sure there's a ton of, ton more women now, of course, which is awesome, mm -hmm. which is really cool about Best Bees because they, they really put that, like, they really step up to that too. So not only from the diversity from the PLC uh, part, the Beehive is, like we talked about, it's mostly women. So there's so many women in leadership at Best Bees, and mm. we were successful. Like, who would have thought, right? Yeah. Just kidding, no. It's yeah. like, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> like, there's just, like, the leadership diversity in these companies. It's just, it's just these little pinpoints. And then in sustainability, like, if you if you read any, but any company's, like, sustainability outlook or, like, what their plan is, the equity and inclusion part is is part of it now mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's just that wasn't that wasn't in the conversation that was like still like big news to people in like 2010 even mm -hmm. so just not that far behind but it's just part of it now and it's just like because we know that the same ideas will just get us to where we were and and that's the thing i guess that's really it the same ideas won't yeah and that's why we got to question the book that's yeah. why we got to bring in new ideas oh i i love that and it's so it's it's so inspiring to to hear that um, this is becoming a the value system of how business um, is approached. Um, you know, this idea of like the difference of ideas that 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 like if we want solutions, it's not about you know f continuing to do the same thing that we're doing or continuing to use the same premises that we are, but mm -hmm. to seek out those who are coming from different backgrounds mm -hmm. give them the resources the knowledge of tools within the industry you know the, to, to build their skill sets and then to like from that can emerge the, from through the integration of their own unique perspective and background mm -hmm. perhaps something that will you know add to to the to the ever-growing and, and solution-oriented um outcome and yeah. it's just like it's to me, it's like, yeah, that's that's like a no-brainer. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, even in terms of, like, 
like there's one thing that I've really learned about nature is that it, it it's this ever expansive process mm-hmm. that is all inclusive in the sense that like anything can emerge anything can like emerge to become the thing that works mm-hmm. and and there's no you know there's nothing that's sort of dictating what what is going to work and what's not going right. to work right it's 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 either going to happen or it's not but it's going to come from everywhere and anywhere right yeah. it's i always like to think say that like nature is the best like example of self-expression it, it yeah. allows everything to be able to express itself and it's in its own nature yeah um and yeah i just love that that's being modeled uh, yeah. in this way and yeah. that you're that you're you know really uh being able to participate in that yeah yeah it's really exciting and what the way i think about just like what you're saying um one of the big things that i always think about is the edge effect i don't know if you're familiar with that concept so it's like where two um microclimates or climates collide is where there's the biggest biodiversity so like the edge of the beach reaches the forest and there's just like the craziest stuff in between oh it's the intertidal zone is that is that the proper term for it no, no, that, I'm just thinking of another example of okay. edge. Okay, edge yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, It's a very, like, uh, the Puget Sound is an extremely diverse ecosystem. Yeah. Um, and most of that diversity exists, you know, on, on the shore in the intertidal zone. Yeah, okay. Um, so it's, I, I can, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, that's just, and it's just like, that's where we're at. We're colliding the world of close-mindedness with the world of, not open-mindedness, but these people who've been scratching and clawing to give it, just get a shot. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to see what that is in the next few years. And if that's enough for us to save the planet, that's going to be pretty dope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. um, I, I can't wait to see what happens. I mean, yeah. that's, 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 sometimes that's all we can do is, is, um, is, is, um, you know, look forward to, to the near future and, yeah. and have some, you know, level of faith in what we're doing is, is going to make an impact. And, um, yeah, um, Robin, I really appreciate it. I, you taking the time to, to come here today and, and yeah. to talk, um, about what you're doing, um, share a little bit about bees and, and importance that they play, uh, in, in the world. Um, and if you wanted to like, where can, where can folks go if they want to learn more about, <laughs> Like if they want to start their own, um, if they want to get a beehive in their backyard or um, if they just want to learn more about bees. Yeah. Um, well, of course, bestbees.com if they want to come have us do it for them. Um, and you can check out our research tab, check out our TED Talks and see a little more about what our work is. But at the same time, there's a ton of resources on the Internet. I like to joke that I went to YouTube University to learn bees. <laughs> but one of, the fav- one of my favorite uh, avenues was the University of Guelph. They put their entire bee catalog of videos on there. So everything starting from what to do when you get your first like small beehive called the nucleus colony to like advanced things like splitting colonies or treating for diseases or managing an angry colony. Which so again that's University of Guelph. How on do you YouTube. spell that? Guelph? G U E L P H, I believe. It's okay. a university in Canada. And okay. it's very well done. Well and we'll make sure to put the link in for sure in, um, in, in the notes. But yeah. Um Cool. And, and, um, if, if someone is thinking about wanting to do this professionally, yeah. Um, reach out to bestbees.com, say that, uh, you want to talk to Robin or, or somebody, or we're in most cities. And especially if you have a background or a little bit of information about bees, um, our company is growing so fast. We would love more beekeepers. 
Awesome. We're going to need them. Awesome. Well, again, thanks, Robin. Um, It's great to catch up. It's so good to see you. Um, I love that we got to do this in person. Yeah. Um, And, um, yeah, uh, tune in until next time. And, and, you know, maybe we'll we'll stay in touch and, and see how things progress and hopefully have you back on the show sometime. Thanks so much. 